Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you who are here in person, those of you joining us online, glad that you have given us some of your time today, and I pray it will be a blessing and an encouragement to you as we again seek to know more of God's heart and uh, his love for us. And so wherever you're at today, I wanna invite you to just open yourselves up to what God has to say to you today and to open yourself up to his word as well. We're gonna begin with a quote that I'd like you to think about, which says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This was said by a pastor from the mid-1900s named A.W. Tozer, and he was known for his passionate pursuit of God. And he must have at some point observed that our thoughts about God greatly impact our lives and greatly impact our relationship with God. So here's the quote again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, we might debate, Tozer, about whether or not that is the most important thing about us, but the first half of his statement relates to what we've been talking about in this series. What comes into your mind when you think about God? And what do you think God thinks of you? And we explored the questions that we might have, the uh, thoughts that might come into our minds when we think about God and he looks at us, we might think he's disappointed with us or angry or frustrated or exasperated or uncaring or maybe that he's so frustrated with us that he is on the verge of kicking us out of his family. Yet many of these thoughts about God are inaccurate they're untrue, they're wrong, which is why we need the Bible. For God's word corrects our misconceptions of his view of us. So we've asked this question, what kind of a heart does Jesus have for us? Does God have for us? And we have seen, first, Jesus invite us to come to him because he is gentle and lowly in heart and we will find rest for our souls. We've seen Jesus' compassionate heart for the harassed and the helpless crowds. We saw Jesus' ability to sympathize with our weaknesses for he has been tempted in every way like we are yet without sin. And last week we saw Jesus as the perfect high priest who deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward who come to him. And today we're going to get another picture of the heart of Christ and the heart of God for us. This will potentially help anyone here today who thinks or might think that God is fed up with them or who thinks that God has abandoned them, that God is not paying attention. So let's find out more about God's heart for us in the Gospel of John chapter 6 and I'm going to be starting at verse 22 and reading all the way to verse 40. And watch again for the heart of Jesus for us. So John 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, 
when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him, in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is him who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet... Do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this comes following the feeding of the 5,000. And there Jesus multiplied miraculously five loaves of bread and two fish to feed this massive crowd. And the people recognize that Jesus is someone special. In fact, in John 6, 15, we're told they want to make him king by force. But this is not why Jesus came. So he withdraws to the mountainside to pray, and the disciples get into a boat to go back to their home base in Capernaum. And there was only one boat on the seashore that the people saw, and they see the disciples get in, but not Jesus. The disciples then go on the sea to row back to their home base in Capernaum, but the wind comes up and they have to row against the wind and it gets really rough and windy. And then they see what looks like a ghost walking on the water towards them. And just like you and I would, they are fearful when we see someone walking on the water. When's the last time you saw that? Probably never. Well, imagine what they saw, these, these experienced seamen, and see this person come walking towards them on the water but soon they discover it is Jesus he reassures them it is I don't be afraid and they take him into the boat and then miraculously they are immediately at Capernaum so the next morning the crowd that had been fed the five that that had been fed the bread looks for Jesus and they know he didn't get into the boat with the disciples but they can't find him and these boats from Tiberias appear and so they decide we're going to use these boats and go to Capernaum and see if we can find Jesus. And they find him there and ask, how'd you get here? But Jesus 
redirects the conversation away from his unique journey to Capernaum and instead he makes a penetrating observation about their motives for seeking him. He claims they seek him for the wrong reasons. They haven't come to follow him as believers. Instead, he discerns what they really want is to secure an easy and permanent food supply. So in verse 27, he says, Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. In other words, they sought more food, like they had eaten the day before. And that food, if left out in the sun, would spoil. Jesus has a food that endures to eternal life. And he can give it to them as the Son of Man from the Father. Well, in verse 28, they pick up on the word works. Jesus said, do not work for the food that perishes. So they think that if they they do something, they will get this food. What works can we do to get this food? And he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So to receive the spiritual food that will endure to eternal life, they had to believe in him. That meant to acknowledge that he was sent from God the Father, and it also meant that he would respond appropriately to the one sent from God with worship, obedience, and commitment. And they seem to understand that he requires belief in him to access this food that he's talking about. Yet they're not convinced that they can believe in him. So they ask in verse 30, so what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? Now that seems like a strange request. They have just tasted of the miraculous feast in the feeding of the 5,000. They have just seen him do this incredible sign. They've recognized that he's special and they ask for a sign. It could be that what they were doing was asking for the sign. And the sign in some circles was that if Someone came who claimed to be the Messiah to prove his Messiahship. He had to reproduce the miracle from the Old Testament. And that was when God fed the Israelites with manna or bread from heaven in the wilderness. This goes back to when the Israelites fled Egypt and escaped from Egypt and then went into the wilderness where there is no permanent and regular food source. So God fed them by raining down this bread from heaven. You can read about it in Exodus 16 if you want to get the whole story there. And this this bread would rain down from heaven and in the morning they would go out and they would pick it up. They called it manna, which means what is it? They didn't know. And it fed them for 40 years while they wandered in the desert. So the feeding of the 5,000 did not involve bread coming down from heaven. Christ used bread that already existed and multiplied it. He used two real fish and multiplied it. And they're saying, if you want us to believe in you, you've got to reproduce this miracle. Rain down bread from heaven. And they say near the end or in verse 31 of their statement, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Well, Jesus responds in verse 32. He says, truly, truly, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And he's responding to their statement, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And he, in their minds, is Moses. Moses is the one who provided the bread from heaven. But in reality, Jesus reminds them, it's the Father who ultimately provided this bread from heaven. And he has something called true bread, which implies it's somehow superior to the bread that they were seeking. And then verse 33 For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so now he's really trying to shift their understanding of bread. They're thinking the stuff that you eat to fill your stomach. And he's talking about bread as a person. A person who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is not bread for the stomach but bread for the soul. And it is found in a person who comes down from heaven and gives life. But they still don't seem to get it in verse 34. They say, sir, give us this bread. And notice, they don't call him Lord. It's sir, a title of respect, but certainly not a title of belief or understanding, so Jesus was right about their motives and unbelief. Yet he makes everything clearer in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he claims to be the bread of life, and anyone who comes and believes in him will not hunger, or thirst. So this can't be talking about physical bread because when you and I eat bread, a few hours later, we are hungry again. Yet our spiritual hunger can be satisfied when we come to and believe in Jesus. And though we may still have spiritually dry times, our ultimate hunger for connection to God is satisfied when we come to Jesus. And then Jesus identifies the state of their hearts in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So they've seen all of this. They've seen Jesus multiply the loaves. They've seen the Son of Man. They've seen his claim that he came down from heaven. And his explanation that can only be divine, yet they still do not believe. Yet Jesus then announces their unbelief is not going to determine whether or not he really is the Messiah. God's redemptive plan does not depend on their belief. It will advance regardless. And in verse 37, we find God and Jesus' heart for us today. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So what kind of a heart does Jesus have for us? Jesus has a heart of persevering love for whoever comes to him. Jesus 
will never cast us out. He will never drive us away. His love endures, continues, and remains for those who come to him. He will never get so exasperated with us that he finally kicks us out of God's family. And Jesus' words here contain a double negative to emphasize the certainty of his persevering love. The one coming to me, I will most certainly never cast out. Author Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, which we've been following in this series, points to the mountain of theology in just this one verse, John 6, 37. It starts by saying, all that the Father give will come to me. And Ortland says, all, not most. Once the Father sets his loving gaze on a wandering person, that person's rescue is certain. And Jesus declares the Father's involvement in our salvation. It's not like Jesus receives us and then he goes and tries to convince the Father to accept us. You know how sometimes we're okay with Jesus but we have a problem with God? Or we think Jesus is the nice one and God is the mean one? Here it's the Father himself who ordains our deliverance. And notice the Father gives us to the Son gives us. We're a gift. It is the Father's deep delight to freely entrust rebels into the gracious care of the Son. And he also notes that we will come. So God's saving purpose for sinners is never thwarted. He is never frustrated. He never runs out of resources. If the Father calls We will come to Christ, but we're not robots. We're not dragged kicking and screaming. Jesus receives whoever comes to him. And it's like the Father works in us and on us to open our eyes. And Christ becomes beautiful and we desire to come. And Ortland also notes that we come to Christ, a person, not a doctrine, not the church, not the gospel, though all these are important. We come to a person, Christ himself, who says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Yet, why would Jesus say this? Why couldn't he just say, whoever comes to me, I will receive? Why the double emphasis on I will never, certainly not, cast out? Well, there must have been a belief, a tradition, where people were really concerned about whether or not they were right with God. And that how they lived their lives determined whether or not God would keep them. And think about it for you and me. Why might we think Christ might cast us out? Why might we hesitate to come to Christ? Maybe it's because we're convinced Jesus will eventually get sick of us. Ortland refers to a work by John Bunyan that unpacks this. You may have heard of Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, second best-selling book in all of history after the Bible. And Bunyan wrote an entire book on John 6, verse 37. And he spent time examining 
why we might hesitate in coming to Christ. And he finds that we are often afraid that Jesus will not receive us or remain with us because of our messed up lives and our messed up thoughts. Bunyan frames our objections in an imaginary conversation with Christ that goes like this. But I'm a great sinner, says you. I'll never cast you out, says Christ. I'm a long time sinner, says you. I will never cast you out, says Christ. I'm, I'm a hard-hearted person, says you. I will never cast you out. I'm, I'm a, I used to be faithful and I've slid so far backwards. I'll never cast you out. I've served Satan some of my days. I'll never cast you out. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will never cast you out, says Christ. And this promise was provided, Bunyan says, to answer all objections. And it does answer them. And then Dane Ortland says, fallen, anxious sinners like us are limitless in our capacity to come up with reasons for Jesus to cast us out. We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. And even when we run out of tangible reasons, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus is finally going to grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. I've had it with you. And then Ortland composes his own imaginary conversation with Jesus that goes like this. Uh, no. No, no wait, um, Jesus. Uh, you don't understand. I have really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, says Jesus. Uh, you know most of it, sure. Uh, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside of me that's hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, well the thing is, it's not just my past. It's what's going on in the present, too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free from this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. No. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And we cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep, for no such reason exists. Every human friendship has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times we are cast out, the walls go up, but with Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very items that qualify us to approach him. Nothing but coming to him is required first at conversion and then a thousand times thereafter until we are with him upon death. So we might hesitate to come to Christ because of our own sin or our belief that he will eventually get sick of us, but he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then there's another reason why we may hesitate to come to him. And that may be we interpret difficult times to mean he has abandoned us. And when life is really tough, we can conclude that the only explanation must be God has cast us out of our family, his family. 
or God is out to get us, or God has abandoned us. And I've seen it happen. We knew a family whose 11 or 12-year-old child was killed by a drunk driver, a terrible tragedy, devastating. And the driver was a teenager, and when they got a lenient sentence in the eyes of the father, of the 12-year-old, the father rejected God. He concluded God had abandoned him and God was unjust. And he lived for years in defiance of God. And I don't know if he ever came back. And I think tough times threaten our confidence in God's love and care for us. We ask or question or wonder about God's love and presence. Ortland says, as pain piles up, as numbness takes over, as the months go by, at some point, the conclusion seems obvious. We have been cast out. Surely this is not what life would feel like for one who has been buried in the heart of a gentle and lowly Savior who says, come to me and you'll find rest. But Jesus does not say that those with pain-free lives are never cast out. He says those who come to him are never cast out. So it is not what life brings to us, but to whom we belong, that determines Christ's heart of love for us. Our strength of resolve is not part of the formula of retaining his goodwill. And then Ortland has an excellent example that helps us picture Christ's persevering love for us. Imagine a two-year-old starting to walk down the slope of a wading pool. And as the water gets a little bit deeper, he or she reaches up their little hand to grab on to mom or dad's hand. But a two-year-old's grip is not very strong. And left to their own strength, the two-year-old would certainly slip out of the parent's hand when the water got deeper and the waves got stronger. But the parent determines, I'm not going to let go of this hand. I will not let go of this child's grasp. Even if they try to get away from me, I've got them. I have a firm hold on them. And you and I are like the two-year-old. We reach up for God and we, try, we grasp him, but our grasp is weak. And yet, Jesus' sure grasp never falters. Like Psalm 63, 8 says, My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. And this is the persevering love of Christ. And even though those people from the crowd didn't believe in Jesus as the Lord that day, God's saving work would still continue and advance. And in John 6, 39, Jesus announces the will of his Father. He says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose no one, no one of all he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Maybe you have lost loved ones in your life. And the last few months or years went really poorly. Maybe they even said things about God 
that they would never have said earlier. But Jesus says, I will lose no one of all that he has given to me. So I'd summarize this message this way. Jesus' persevering love for whoever comes to him invites us to stop excusing our hesitancy and to return to him. To stop saying, you know, I've just done too much to return to God. I've gone down too far that path and he's not going to take me back. Or my life and the way it's turned out has become so difficult, God must have abandoned me. I'm not talking to him anymore. And when we're in those situations, the devil pounces and introduces thoughts into our lives like, yeah, you are too far gone. God is not going to take you back. Or you think God's with you? With all that you're going through, he's abandoned you. And in those moments, we need the truth of John 6.37 to cut through our despair or our self-loathing or the accusations of the devil and others where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So today... I want to invite you to come to him. And maybe there's something in your life, some area that you've been keeping from him, thinking, oh, I can hide that from God. He sees everything all the time. And instead, just bring it to him and say, Lord, I I come to you and I'm going to stop this whole hesitating thing and come. Or maybe you're going through a tough time, Tough month, tough year, tough few years, and you're just like, God, you don't care. No, bring that pain to God. He can take it. And whoever comes to Christ will never, he will never cast out. And so, Lord God, as we come to you now, Lord Jesus, you know all who are here in person, online, and what's going on in their lives and where they've been at with you. Perfectly, you know perfectly. You discern hearts, just like you discern the people that came to you that day in Capernaum. You know where we've been holding back from you, where we've been hesitating, where we've been hiding, where we've been saying no, or coming up with reasons why you won't receive us. And so right now, I want to invite you to just come to the Lord as you are. And Lord, here we are. And Lord, I know my heart, if someone offends me once, I'm annoyed. Twice, I'm frustrated. Three times, I'm getting angry. Four times, I'm exasperated. Five times, you're gone. I hold you at arm's length. Imagine if you did that with us, Lord. We praise you that you don't. And that whoever comes to you, you will never cast out. 
Amen.